If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the bun with crunch. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Britain's country houses have been on something of a roller coaster ride over the past few centuries. They flourished during the Georgian and Victorian eras, endured a crisis of confidence following the world wars, before enjoying a renaissance as we entered the 21st century. So why do we remain so captivated by grand country piles? And what can they tell us about Britain's changing political landscape? Clive Aslett, author of The Story of the Country House, spoke to our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, about the history of Britain's country houses. Clive, for me, the term country house has always conjured images of grand and impossibly opulent Georgian or Victorian piles set in mile upon mile of uh, rolling countryside. And in this, I suspect I'm not alone, but reading your book, it soon became evident that this is only sort of half the story, isn't it? Um, so I wonder if you could kick off by sort of setting some parameters here. How would you define a country house? But what makes a country house a country house? Well, it's very difficult to, fi- to define because there have been so many different kinds of houses which would fall under that uh, term, really, the country house. Um, they could be hunting boxes, for example, or places that people went to to get away from the hundreds of retainers that they had in other houses. Or they could be 
centres of power. And I think these days we tend to think of a country house as being somewhere which is obviously in the countryside, where you can't see other houses from the windows, where there's a, a good idea of a country life with horses and dogs and perhaps a bit of farming, but not necessarily um, that as being the main source of income, and somewhere which is very private and probably where the owners have tried to create an ideal world, an Arcadian world for themselves and their family. I think that's how I see it, really. Now, you write in the book that the story of the country house can be described as a constant dialogue between two archetypes, the hall in the villa, the public and the private realm, the northern vernacular gathered cosily around the glowing hearth and the architectural discipline of sunlit Mediterranean lands. <laughs> lovely bit of prose there. I just wonder if you could, Thank you. you could explain what you mean by that. Well, I think if you look at the uh, story of the country house, there are these two ideas. One... Um, I associate with uh, the Roman villa, the bathhouse, where they, where they all had uh, bathhouses for the family, where the family lived uh, very privately and separate from the uh, community around them. And then the Saxon hall, where everybody lived together. And it struck me that these uh, ideas continue through the whole history of the country house, because sometimes there was a communal idea of how people should live. And at other times, people were very much living, perhaps very splendidly, but living in public. Sure. And yet I think, uh, particularly today, people have got an idea that uh, life, wherever they're living, should be much more private. Uh, and that is also a theme, people trying to get away from other people. Yeah. And sort of the country house is, is, is somewhere that they go to escape. Now, when does this story begin? When... When, when did the country house begin to emerge and why? It really began in the Middle Ages, in, in the late Middle Ages, really. In the earlier um, Middle Ages, the way people lived was quite different. If they owned uh, houses, they probably owned a lot of them. People had uh, manors, which rather than being next door to each other, could be because of the way that the, um, medieval society worked and people inherited things could be scattered all over the country. And so great noblemen spent their time travelling between these manors and they went with, a, with, with all their possessions packed up on carts. Maybe a, a, uh, 18 carts would be trundling across over the terrible roads of the medieval landscape or perhaps they were going by ship. Um, and when they arrived, they would set up their furniture and they would make that place their house. But only for the time being, there wasn't this sense of settlement and permanence, which yeah. is one of the things that we associate with country houses today. That idea didn't really, um, uh, didn't really develop along with the idea of home itself, home being a place until the, until the late Middle Ages. But then after that, there are all kinds of different ways in which uh, the country house was um, was expressed. For some people, it was a palace. For other people, it was a, um, a hideaway, really. So at the beginning, was it more about the land than the actual building upon the land? Yes, the land was very, very important in the Middle Ages and um, really uh, remained so until land became unprofitable in the late 19th century. Sure. Um, 
really when there was then a complete shift. But in the Middle Ages, uh, land really was equivalent to power because everything in the Middle Ages required either human or animal force. And with land went everybody who worked for you. And so people could travel around with a huge gang of retainers, which in some cases would be 800 people. Now, you also write that by the Tudor and Jacobean eras, country houses were very much viewed as status symbols and courtiers spent prodigious sums of money on lavish building projects, sometimes ruining themselves in the process. Why were England's elites so hell-bent on making a statement in this way? And (laughs) Have you got any examples of of courtiers for for whom this went spectacularly wrong? Well, um, they really had to do this because to display their wealth, that was actually regarded as being a good thing. There was a theory of magnificence and it was accepted that to spend a huge amount of money, to show yourself to, to be like a prince, that was a thoroughly good thing. There was a kind of um, economic theory of trickle-down from the top. Uh, if if the great person in the community spent a lot of money, that would do everybody good. Whether that was true or not, I, I, I question yeah. from an economic point of view. But anyway, that was the idea. So uh, it wasn't regarded with suspicion, the spending of a huge amount of money, but also from the individual's point of view, he had to do this to show that he was a great man. If he if he didn't spend prodigiously, then people would have thought, well, he's out of favour. So they wouldn't have um uh that they, they wouldn't have gone to him looking for the sort of favours that would mean that they in turn paid him money. So they had to do that. But in the case of the um uh, Lord Lyle at uh, Penshurst. I mean, he was somebody who, in the um, round about 1600, he was somebody who was very keen to spend a lot of money on his country house, Penshurst place, but um, he didn't have it. He'd run out. And so his uh, correspondence with his wife is uh, full of things saying, well, look, uh, Christmas is coming. I have to spend a lot of money on everybody, and I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Yeah. And he he kept on having these projects and his steward was telling him, no, you don't have any money. And besides, if you even if you did, why would anybody come to hunt in the park you just created in Kent? It's not a very fashionable place, you know. Uh, but he 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 tormented himself. He he wanted to do that. And next door there was Noel, where um the owner was doing exactly what Lord Lyle thought he should be doing. So it's a little bit like a a, a mini arms race between these these That's exactly what it was. Yes, it was an arms race, and they did it to show off. I mean, there used to be a theory that country houses should be supported by the estates that they owned, but this wasn't really the case in the um, 16th and 17th centuries, or certainly the early 17th century, because people ruined themselves on these houses. Um, If they, uh, it, it was all about getting favour with the king. And of course, ultimately, if they could get the king to stay with them, how how wonderful was that? That was that was worth a lot in every conceivable way. And it wasn't just men building these grand country houses, was it? I mean, you mentioned Bess of Hardwick. I mean, she, she was one of the biggest spenders, wasn't she? Yes, she was. She had become very rich through marrying people. And at the end of her life, um, she was a very big landowner. And 
a great builder. She always had been with her previous husbands. And she built Hardwick uh, on a spectacular uh, scale. There was an old house uh, there. And when she moved in, she had she had a band with trumpets to um, escort her into the house. It was a great, it was a great moment. Mostly, it, uh, men had control of, over their wives' incomes, but it didn't mean to say that wives didn't play a big role in the country house. For example, um, during uh, periods of war, during the Civil War, several wives defended their houses against attacking troops on both sides. Um, and uh, they saw, saw it as their role to keep their husband's house and his estates in, um, in family hands whilst he was away battling somewhere else. On that topic, I mean, how did the Civil War and the, the triumph of the puritanical Oliver Cromwell change the dial for country houses? Did, did it go out of fashion to, to build big, elaborate residences during this period? Well, the big houses had got pretty knocked about during the Civil War because often they were regarded as strongholds, even if they weren't actually castles. And afterwards, castles were what they called slighted. That's to say Oliver Cromwell blew them up um, so that they couldn't be used for defensive purposes anymore. So, um, and of course, a lot of these big houses were in the hands of the losing side. And if if, if those people stayed in England, they had to pay a lot of money uh, to get their estates back, and um, they mostly weren't doing very well. But building went on. It went on in a, a slightly different way. Uh, um, there were strong connections with Holland, and Holland had developed a much more a sort of cosier kind of architecture, really. Red brick, um, rather, it was, it was symmetrical, it was well-organised. Um, it was on a less... Um, epic scale yeah. of the houses, the great houses that had been built uh, a generation before. And, and that's what that's what came in under the Commonwealth. Some people could, could build, but they didn't choose to build on such a, a, a great scale. And also the idea of everybody eating together under the owner's eye in the great hall, where the whole community came together, this, this was going out. I wonder if we could briefly talk about Inigo Jones. You say in your book that he streaks like a meteor across the Stuart sky, a painter, mask designer, antiquarian, connoisseur and all-round man of taste. And how did he how did he change the face of the country house? Well, he was an extraordinary man and he must it's really incredible because he must have struck individuals as as amazing. Yeah. And he was very close to the king and queen in two reigns. He designed his court masks and so on. And yet there are hardly any references to him in letters or diaries. So it's difficult to know what he was like as a person. I think perhaps he was a bit aloof and detached, I would guess. But he was completely new in his thinking about the country house. He'd been in Italy. He'd um, studied uh, the architecture of Palladio, uh, the um, architect who worked around Vicenza and in the Veneto, and he'd met architects in Italy. He'd also personally studied the ruins of ancient Rome. So he had a knowledge which most, well, which was very, very rare for the time, but also he abstracted the principles. And so 
instead of a, a very ornament, decorated kind of architecture, he um, introduced a classicism which was based on very clear principles. He didn't build very many buildings himself because the times were so troubled and the king couldn't afford it. But he did build one, which was the Queen's House at Greenwich, which was revolutionary. It was unlike anything in Europe at the time. And he also had influence. In those days, um, architects weren't, as we think of them now, building building country houses was a much more collegiate or collaborative process. And Inigo Jones in the Commonwealth period would come down and he'd be part of a group of people who was discussing a house. And um, he he influenced a couple of houses uh, under the Commonwealth, which again were revolutionary in their ideas. It wasn't until quite a, a, a bit after his day that his ideas were taken up. I mean, about 50 years after his death, really. But he was enormously revered in the 18th century and very influential. Now, it seems that country houses were often mini communities in themselves. You talk of noble retinues that could contain perhaps hundreds of people. And in later centuries, dozens and dozens of staff are required to run houses and gardens. What kind of impact did country houses have on their local areas and local populations? Well, it must have been huge because they were completely um, self-contained entities. Uh, They must have given a lot of employment to the local population in the uh, medieval period and and later. I mean, when the uh, family arrived with all their retinue, they must have consumed... I mean, they really stayed in the same house until they'd eaten everything which was in the area. And then they had to move on. You know, also the house had to be cleaned out because it had got so filthy with all these people staying in it. But um, they must have had a great economic effect. But also these houses were themselves, uh, as you said, they were communities. They were the size of villages, really. And they didn't have to, uh, they had um, everything that they needed to eat coming in. They had all the beer that they needed being made on the uh, on site. Um, it, 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 everybody who needed to clean the house or uh, wash the laundry, whatever, it was all happening in that one place. So there were a lot of people there and... Um, they must have had. They must have had not only an economic influence, but of course, for a long time, they had a political influence. Um, the uh, just reading the novels of Trollope, who was writing after the um, Great Reform Acts of the nineteenth century, even even in the later nineteenth century, uh, the eighteen seventies, uh, country houses had an enormous influence on the electoral outcome of. Um, the boroughs nearby. And so uh, they were very dominant. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. To think that life really was like Downton Abbey, there there are ways in which it wasn't. I mean, one of them being that a house like that probably would have employed far more people than the makers of the programme could ever afford. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Right, jump forward a, a few centuries um, to the first half of the 20th century. As you point out, this is a, a pretty tough time for, for country houses, wasn't it? Largely due to the ravages of, of two world wars. In, in the book, you talk of wings of houses being turned into convalescent homes, the money for building projects drying up, servants drifting into cities. Uh, for work, grenades being let off in greenhouses. I mean, <laughs> what kind of impact yeah. did war have on Britain's country houses? Well, it was it was devastating, and a lot of people thought they would never recover. Yeah. Before the First World War, country houses had been uh, not doing tremendously well because a lot of them had these big investments in land, and since the 1870s, land hadn't really been paying. So um, they'd been running down, and unless uh, the, the eldest son had been lucky enough to marry uh, an American heiress or something like that, um, they they weren't necessarily doing so well. Um, even, even politically, um, there had been uh, a rumpus, and lords had lost their some of their powers. But then came the First World War and um, a tremendous number of the young heirs were killed. The the people who'd been to great public schools like Eton um, suffered a disproportionate number of losses because they were the young lieutenants who were all leading from the front. And so the war memorial at Eton has got over a thousand names on it. So these are people who would have inherited yeah. uh, country houses. So that was thrown into that, that, that the sort of um, system of inheritance was affected. But of course, the war had to be paid for and taxes started to rise. For the first time before the First World War, I think it's broadly true to say that um, America tended to look to Europe for an example, 
after the First World War, we looked to America. People yeah. liked the idea, the way that people were living in America, there was much more money and, and, and people weren't living in these clapped old, old houses which hadn't been modernised. Um, and the situation was even worse after the Second World War because uh, in the First World War, people had turned wings of houses into uh, uh, convalescent hospitals. But in the Second World War, they didn't have any choice. And really, a lot of houses, uh, their owners found it extremely difficult to recover from requisitioning. And the country was on its knees. And people often didn't want that way of life anymore. They wanted something which was more convenient and less trouble. So um, the whole raison d'etre of the country house was being called into question. And that it didn't it didn't recover for decades the 70s were almost the lowest point because as well as all the political chaos that there had been there was very high inflation which was bad for people who had fixed incomes but um or invested incomes um and there was also the oil crisis yeah. and so it made it very difficult for people a to move around or and b particularly to heat their homes so so by the end of the 70s things were looking extremely bleak how many houses were lost, you know, in this period? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult to um, get an exact figure yeah. because of the difficulties. Uh, different people define country house in different ways. But um, it was hundreds. Yeah. Uh, and from, uh, from the 1870s, when the agricultural depression set in, uh, I don't know, it could have been as many as a thousand. Right, OK. Now, your, your penultimate chapter is called Recover and Boom. What did the Renaissance, which it clearly has been with the country house in the, the, the last 30 years, what has this Renaissance looked like and what have been the, the, the factors causing it? Well, I think they're, one, I would say economic, and two, leading on to that, which is very important, confidence yeah. and self-belief. The um, economic future of the country's house was improved in the 1980s, largely due to reforms in taxation. And so um, owners could afford to put their houses uh, into repair or maybe not uh, into uh, absolutely tip-top order. At least uh, they weren't falling down quite so much. Yeah. So uh, that was one thing. But uh, confidence is also very important. And uh, owners by the 21st century, got the idea that it was no longer a crazy idea to go and live in these spaces. Yeah. People who had let out their houses as, for example, schools or other institutions, went back to live in them as homes. And, and so the confidence um, returned. And, and that's extraordinarily important. And uh, now I think that's one of the very striking things. I began work in the 1970s when... Um, Everything was 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 pretty gloomy. I mean, it didn't seem so gloomy to me because I was young and, and uh, you know you're optimistic at that yeah, age. Sure. But uh, with, uh, looking back, I think that the uh, for the country house it was uh, pretty grim. But uh, that's not the mood at the moment. I notice that you know a lot of youngish owners are there with young families, and they they don't regard it as being a crazy thing to do at all. They they see the point and uh, furthermore they're looking at what assets they've got and really making something of it and how did the the advent and rise of the national trust change the picture well um 
that the National Trust started as an organization which was going to acquire landscape in particular. Yeah. Uh, it, it began in 1895. In the 1930s, it um, acquired the right to um, buy country houses or, or, or uh, accept country houses if they were given to it, because there was clearly, uh, between the wars, a crisis was evident. And that crisis got war worse after the Second World yeah. War. And so it... it um, it sort of changed direction, really, and for quite a long time, it was rather dominated by the idea that it was about country houses. People in the National Trust don't see it quite so much that way anymore, but um, uh, but that was the idea, and it led the world in the display of country houses and research into them, and it was recognised around the world as being an outstanding institution. I mean, there is a, a genuine surge in public interest in, in, in these brand, brand houses, isn't there? I mean, how much of that comes down to Downton Abbey? I mean, it, it is, is, <laughs> is the Downton effect, the so-called Downton effect, is that, do you see that as being a genuine phenomenon? Oh, yes, it's huge. Of course, particularly in America, because if you talk, if you give a talk in America, everybody wants to know about Downton Abbey <laughs> and whether <laughs> whether these houses are really like Downton Abbey. And, uh, uh, and, and that's the kind of point of reference uh, that they've got. And I think that um, in the way that Upstairs Downstairs did in, I think, the 70s, yeah. uh, that uh, television series sparked a lot of interest in country houses. So I think, uh, so I think Downton Abbey uh, has done, and I think it's done actually a tremendously good job. Of course, um, you know, it's a mistake to think that life really was like Downton <laughs> Abbey. There, <laughs> there are ways in which it wasn't. I mean, one of them being that a house like that probably would have employed far more people than the makers of the programme could ever afford <laughs> to show on the screen. Yeah, sure. And they also didn't talk to servants in that way. I mean, they, even if they really barely had any idea of how they lived or that they so much as existed, I suspect, probably. I think that was quite different. But still, it's a very good programme. In recent months, there's been a, a, a great bit of discussion around the extent to which some of Britain's country houses were financed by the proceeds of colonialism and slavery. What do you make of that debate? Do you think the country houses should be doing more to acknowledge the link between the darker side of the imperial projects and these stunning works of architecture, which you know, we see in the British countryside? I think that the subject is slightly overdue for being looked at. Uh, I think that uh, with hindsight, you know, people of previous generations have looked at country houses as embodiment of embodiments of taste. Yeah. And that is no longer quite good enough. I think. I think when I was doing my research for the book, I was actually rather, uh, I, I knew broadly the picture, but I was surprised to think how everything in Georgian England was affected in one way or another. And every country house had a cone of sugar which came from the West Indies, um, and they had pieces of mahogany furniture, all yeah. mahogany furniture, you know, um, it was cut down by slaves um, originally. It was then made into beautiful things by Chippendale. But um, I think equally one has to be nuanced in the way one looks at it. You know, Britain was not unique at all. It's quite the reverse. Uh, looking at human history, slavery is the norm rather than the exception. So I don't think that we were uniquely bad, which I think one has to bear in mind, awful though 
um, it was. And I think we should still be proud of the fact that we were the nation which abolished slavery long before other nations did. Uh, you know, that's to our credit. So I think that um, we shouldn't only beat ourselves up, although equally it's important to recognise what went on and the obviously the complete evil of that system. And what do you think the future is for the country house? I mean, how do country houses remain relevant in the 21st century and how will they continue to do so? I think that recent experience has made them feel very relevant, really. I think during the pandemic, if you were in the very fortunate position of owning a country house or um, even something a bit less grand than that, I think that you were in a very good position to get through it um, more comfortably and with your sanity less threatened than, say, living in a small flat in London. Um, a country house is not uh, self-sufficient anymore, probably, but there's lots of space, there's lots of gardens, um, there's a greater sense of community in the countryside, and uh, I'm not sure that people who um, lived in such houses really noticed, as I say, to quite the same effect as some people living in, in 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 cities. So I think that, that has shown that um, we still uh, like country houses. We they, they still have a particular role in our life. Uh, I think also as we reassess the world after COVID, we perhaps will be looking at a different way of living. The internet has made it much more possible to live in the countryside. And people have also, in all aspects of their life, developed uh, a very great consciousness of privacy, whether it's online or in person, yeah. or whether it's the fact they don't like their pictures being taken on other people's mobile phones. Well, if you want to be private, a country house is a pretty good place to be. Sure. Right, Clive, I can't, you've obviously visited lots and lots of country houses over the years and written about many more. I can't let you go without asking you <laughs> um, to list your three, <laughs> if you can, your three favourite or three recommendations for people to visit? Gosh, well, that's extremely difficult. But I think number one, I would say, is Chatsworth in Derbyshire, because I think that's the country house which has still got absolutely everything. It's firing on all four cylinders at once, yep. if that's the right metaphor. It's got its park, its garden, its fountains, its libraries, its collections, its an an antique marbles, the, the, the window frames at Chatsworth are gilded. <laughs> I mean, it's just got everything. Yep. So if you wanted one house which expresses everything, I think that would be a very good place to start. I'm also very attached to Burton Agnes in the East Riding of Yorkshire because it's so fragile. It's a house of around 1600 with this fabulous late Elizabethan plasterwork and marvellously maintained by um, a private family who still owns it. Uh, but 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 these things are so fragile, and I think you get a sense of that at. Uh, Burton Agnes, and I think Broughton Castle, I mean, that's just, it's got history going back for such a very long way. And if you walk around it with the wonderful owner, Martin Fiennes, there is something of interest 
in every single stone that he will tell you about. And I think if you saw those three, it would be quite a good introduction. That was Clive Aslett. The Story of the Country House is published by Yale University Press. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on the royal powerhouse Maria Theresa. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.